The Camby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. It is August 14th, 2020, and there are 792 days until the Vancouver Municipal Elections. This is the Camby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield, and joining us today for a special segment is Micah Goldberg. Hello. Thanks for having me back on the program. No problem. We're going to talk a bit about the Vancouver Park Board's most recent controversy with you, Micah. We have a bunch of stuff to say about the NPA, housing, lots is going on and by-elections, potentially. You know where things are not going on? The Vancouver City Council, where Dan Fumano has characterized the goings-on as postpone and delay, a torpor-induced troubles, if I ever did see one. Vancouver City Council also approved rezoning for 258 secured rental units in a tower on the former Denny's site, the most expensive Denny's ever. But before we even kick it off, there's something we have to do every show, Matt. Yeah, we need to grab some for some money. So www.patreon.com slash report. If you join our Patreon, you can get access to a bunch of exclusive Patreon content. We sometimes do extended interviews up there. There are stickers, there's merch, and there is also the access to our fabulous Slack channel with Leg and Boot Media, where listeners of both Cambi Report and Politicos can discuss goings-on local, provincial, municipal, and global. Indeed. Again, patreon.com slash report. It's been a little while. Micah, the park board, we talked about it a few times last week, me and Tessa. This time we're going to talk about their motion from July 14th, actually a full month ago. They're allowing camping in the park. Why are people angry? Well, you can tell how contentious the decision was based on the 4-3 vote. It's very tight. Essentially, you have people on the two extremes of this issue and some people in the middle here who have a tough time figuring out which side they're coming down on. The existing park control bylaw restricted people from entering the park after 10 p.m. and from creating a a structure or or erecting a tent, say, uh, overnight in the park. And what this amended bylaw allows people to do is to say, pitch those tents overnight, as long as they're taken down early in the morning the next day. And there's some limitations about where the tents can go up, but it ended up being contentious because I think that there's a a segment of people who maybe feel fatigued by the homeless issue because of how prevalent it is. It's a significant issue, not just in Vancouver, but all over the lower mainland. And for property owners, let's say, this issue has been talked about a lot particularly in recent years, as the problem has become more widespread. And I think the sad truth, Ian, is that there's just no easy answers here. So you get uh, a polarized discussion, but you also get people who are just, frankly, they want the homelessness issue to go away, and it's just not going away. Yeah, I think we saw that in the, you know, in this constant debate around it's Strathcona Park now, it was Crab Park, it was Oppenheimer Park. It's unclear where the next park will be or if 
you know, the tent city in Strathcona Park will be more permanent. But you see this debate somewhat along party lines, but you also see people like Pete Fry, who's a resident of Strathcona, expressing some frustration and expressing some of the frustration of those residents who are you know, tired and want more, want their park back as they see it. Well, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about those extremes, uh, at least on the political spectrum. For some people, you know, the tent cities represent areas that are seen to be unsafe, where they feel like they can't access parks, which are supposed to be a public resource. They create fire risks, sanitation issues. They may be hubs of violence. And frankly, for some people, they're just unsightly. But on the other side, you have individuals who are sympathetic with the campers themselves. These are individuals who have nowhere else to live, who for the most part are suffering from mental health or addictions issues, individuals who are trying to escape abuse and are seeking safety through these tent cities. So you have, it's true, you have this appropriation of uh, public space away from the public. But on the other hand, you have homeless individuals who are you know, trying to perform essential acts in public who, at least with this amendment, are going to have to pack up every morning, lose their community and sense of permanence. That's sort of the debate on the extremes. Yeah, I, I think that it's worth it to consider what purpose parks have in an urban context. And one of them is amenities, certainly, like place to recreate and, and play. And another one is basically just open space or wooded space for general use. It doesn't have to be for recreation. And parks have often served these kind of general use and oftentimes like uses that would not otherwise be prioritized by ruling elites, those uses throughout history. The modern notion of parks like as it originated with the City Beautiful movement in the 1890s and 1900s, emphasized a lot of green open spaces and like monumental grandeur. And then that has kind of shrunk down into this pocket park model that Vancouver has adopted. Although we do have our occasional monuments every once in a while, see Bloedel Conservatory, for example. But like there is like a need that city council won't prioritize or has a hard time prioritizing. And then that just unmet need needs to flow somewhere and parks end up being a pretty logical place for that because everywhere else has like those highest and best use requirements for property taxes. One of the things that I was thinking about when reading up on this article was remember that parking lot that got turned into a dog park a while back for basically property tax reasons where there was a, a huge property tax cut for what was originally a money making enterprises and then became a voluntary developer amenity. I'm interested in knowing like how many of those properties exist and like how many cycle through the, the property development cycle every, every year. And if there is any chance that those kinds of, of places can be used on a perhaps more dependable basis than taking away amenity from other other residents. Right, and we've seen this play out across the lower mainland and elsewhere where people who have nowhere else to go literally seek refuge in these parks. And I think that's where, Micah, you've seen the jurisprudence play out when people say, 
or you know the city moves in with an injunction to kick people out and the people who are there say we have a charter right to live somewhere we have nowhere why can't we be here that's exactly right ian if you look at why the parks board decided to change or amend their their bylaw it's because of jurisprudence that has evolved mostly since 2008 since uh, the adams case which i'm going to talk about in a moment if you look at the the debate within the parks board itself i councillor kupar for example is asking why we allow people to openly camp in parks in the first place that for a variety of reasons we shouldn't enable this type of housing solution and if you look at the green party side of the parks board and particularly uh councillor demers as the vice chair of the board his response was that the park board is trying to create this balance that recognizes the importance of people being able to use the parks, but also recognizes this series of jurisprudence that has effectively made the bylaws as they existed previous to uh, July 14th unconstitutional. This Adams case, which uh, came out of Victoria, reached the Supreme Court in 2008, and the decision was upheld with an asterisk, let's say, uh, by the Court of Appeal the next, the next year. There was a bylaw in Victoria that prevented people from building shelters in public spaces. So there was no prohibition, say, on sleeping uh, in a public area, but having a tent, having a tarp over your head, having a cardboard box even, uh, were all deemed to be contraventions of this bylaw. And the defendants who were homeless individuals argued that these types of bylaws infringed on the rights of homeless people to their life, liberty, and security of the person. This was a, a Section 7 challenge. And their overarching argument was that the bylaws attacked the dignity and personal autonomy of the city's homeless population. The city's response was a bit more technical because what they said the real issue was had nothing to do with the prohibition on structures or, or tents. It was actually the homelessness itself that was the issue. This is sort of a sidestep to get around this Section 7 challenge. And they say that since the bylaws themselves aren't causing the homelessness and the dangerous conditions that come with being homeless, Section 7 wasn't engaged. It's interesting to look at how this compares to some of the public housing policies of other cities. Uh, I mean, New York has one of the best public housing models in the world that just sort of takes, for example, luxury hotels. And because anyone who wants a you know, temporary home in New York is entitled to get a temporary home in New York. If they live there, if they're a resident, they can go and request one of these hotels and the city provides them for them. It speaks to the values of government and the society that, and also really its needs, that the homeless need a place to go. They, they need somewhere to stay because they will continue to exist and you know, be matter and take up space. And that has to happen with dignity, mostly. Some some places don't care. Canada has kind of stepped into the land of creating some positive rights, but mostly it's a, a negative right to not be obstructed from using a public space or a public amenity in a manner that would bring you closer to security of the person. Am I getting that right? I think you're right that the courts, at least, have been very shy to read in positive obligations on the government. 
And because the Charter and the Constitution at large purposefully doesn't contain any rights with respect to property, that has in its own uh, specific way come at a disadvantage to the homeless population who may not otherwise have any rights to, say, a, a safe place to sleep or a permanent shelter over their heads. Things that you might otherwise at least challenge for within the charter. That's kind of a non-starter, the way that the Constitution is has been built up. It's interesting that property rights, in terms of their negative form, will often benefit the hyper-wealthy or you know, the ones with the most property. But the positive corollary of negative property rights is something that would benefit the least advantaged among us. The wealthy can afford the best lawyers. Yeah. Insert plug for upcoming Matthew Naylor hire here, if you're looking, by the way. Ian, I think that that could be its own entire deep dive can be report in and of itself. Probably more suited for some sort of legal podcast, but uh, the Canby Report knows no bounds. In any event, I'm going to just double back here to the case. So I've sort of set out the background of what's going on in this case, what the arguments were. But in Adams, the single most important factor was the true circumstances facing the homeless population. And I recall a couple weeks ago where Horgan got in some hot water for saying addictions was more or less a choice people made. That went to the heart of why it is people are homeless in the first place and how you see or perceive the circumstances surrounding people falling into homelessness or becoming homeless in the first place. In Victoria, at the time Adams was decided in, in 2008, there were 800 people that weren't just facing unstable housing, but were actually homeless, including 60 children. There were about 100, and, uh, 100 or so shelter beds in Victoria which could be expanded to 300 some odd beds in extreme conditions. And there was uncontradicted expert evidence to suggest that exposure to the elements without adequate protection created significant health risks. This was a, a lethal concoction to the city of Victoria's argument. These three factors taken in combination. There was this gap that existed between the amount of homeless people that there were in Victoria and the amount of available beds, which meant as a judicial finding that the individuals who were trying to pitch these tents, trying to put a, a tarp over their head, had no choice but to sleep outside in the city's parks or streets. And the effect of the bylaws, which prevented them from even putting a cardboard box over their heads or, or the most rudimentary form of shelter meant that these people were completely exposed to the elements and they were among the most vulnerable and marginalized individuals in the city. This was Justice Ross's move towards finding that the bylaws were unconstitutional because of the significant and potentially severe health risks that were created. Justice Ross pointed out that a full third of homeless women in Victoria said that the reason that they were homeless was because they had been abused where they lived. Ultimately, the court uh, dismissed the city's technical arguments, found that the risks associated with being homeless weren't really at issue, so this sidestep strategy didn't work. The real issue was prohibiting people from having a shelter over their head. Uh, type of bylaw was actually 
truly preventing people who needed to sleep in parks from actually sleeping in parks. It just forced them into less safe situations where people couldn't stay in camps, where they feel a sense of community, where there is Jane Jacobs, you know, eyes on the street that help enforce community order or where they have to go out into, you know, more secluded areas in, into the woods, into parks, into more remote parks that are more difficult to police. And, you know, some of my friends who have suffered from homelessness before have been robbed in precisely these types of situations. It is terrible and this would be safer. I mean, there's the pushback that many will cite is that Oppenheimer Park wasn't the safest place. There was violence there. There were issues in that specific camp. At the same time, you listen to people who were there and, you know, they'll acknowledge that it wasn't perfect, but it was still the least bad option. Or for many, it was a community that they needed and that they could rely on. Like, I think going back to one of the things that was said early, like, is not an easy situation and not anyone's ideal. But when it comes to a choice between pitching a tent in a city park and what, I guess, just like walking off into the sea, like there aren't better options here. So this is how we get here. Walking off into the sea wasn't judicially discussed, but the Court of Appeal opined on the uh, Supreme Court decision and kind of clarified it. So the Court of Appeal, one thing I should state right off the start is that more or less the Supreme Court decision that I just described was upheld with one exception. Ian, you were describing this, call it an impossible choice here. There's no choice that will please everybody. But the Court of Appeals said this, that in one circumstance, there would be an easy choice. If, for example, the city of Victoria had enough beds to shelter every single homeless person, then the bylaws actually could be enforceable. So the bylaws were only unconstitutional to the extent that this gap existed. This is important for a couple of reasons, but it also shows the direction of the court, which says, if there is actually a bed you can sleep in, in a shelter available to you, then this notion that pitching a tent is somehow important or vital falls away because all of the foundational principles that support the finding that the bylaws were unconstitutional in the Adams case would, would fall away. So, like, what, what would that look like? Like, if some officer was out patrolling a park after closing time and they came across someone in the tent, would they be asking, like, do you have a safe place to go tonight? The park is closed. <laughs> and then if the answer was no, they would just have to either direct them to one of the shelters spaces that they knew about or just leave them be? I'll try to answer it in two ways. So let's take your hypothetical situation where uh, a ranger approaches uh, a homeless individual or an individual in a tent and they ask, do you have any alternative options for housing available? To answer your question, if that individual answered yes, the bylaw officer would be within their rights to say, you can't camp here. You have to go to this alternative means for housing that you have, that's because of how a homeless individual has been defined in the new bylaws. A homeless individual is only somebody who does not have reliable, secure access to housing. So that was the first decision, this Adams decision. The second decision picks up, Ian, on something you were talking about earlier, which was the, the true state of conditions in what 
most people call it a tent city. In the Shantz decision, which was a, a decision 2015 dealing with Abbotsford bylaws, where they prohibited tents from being erected and requiring individuals who wanted to camp overnight in the parks to apply for a permit, to have a credit card and insurance, and they would be charged $10 a night. Effectively, it was making it impossible for homeless people to camp in parks. That decision focuses more on the cold realities of the tent cities, how dangerous they can be with the fire hazards and, and gang violence and discarded drug paraphernalia, sanitary issues. There's other problems, all of which was uh, described in uh, a decision rendered by Chief Justice Hinkson. Hinkson actually adopted similar language from the Adams decision, uh, particularly around Section 7, and found that the bylaws decreased dignity and, and independence, increased the psychological and physical harm that uh, might come to an individual who is homeless. Again, the, the fundamental problem in Chance, much like Adams, was that at the time of the decision was made, there was insufficient viable and accessible options for the residents of Abbotsford who were homeless. And Chief Justice Hinkson recognized the Court of Appeals variation and found that if there were no other viable uh, and accessible options for housing, then the bylaws are necessarily unconstitutional. But he added that the city's homeless cannot be allowed to sleep and erect shelters in public spaces as a fundamental personal choice if this gap didn't exist, because the dignity concerns would fall away. So I think if I'm reading between the lines here, and I'm taking off my lawyer hat for just a second, and I'm putting on my public policy hat, there's a hidden incentive here to governments, which is if you want people out of tent cities, if you want to eradicate the eyesore, let's say, if you find it to be an eyesore, then give them a bed to sleep in. Now, Chief Justice Hinkson didn't say that, but if I'm really reading between the lines, that's what I see. Ultimately, we would hope our politicians actually care about all of the residents of their constituency, including those without houses, and would try to find homes for them. But the argument you're referring to makes a lot of sense as well and will appeal to some others. I think where the park board in particular comes down into a tougher spot is they don't have any authority to do that. It's not the Vancouver Park Board's job to build houses. It's their job to mow the grass and maintain Vancouver's parks. And so they're kind of in this tough situation where they're not responsible for building the homes. The province is doing a bit, the city's doing a bit, but clearly it's not enough. And so I can sympathize with the frustrations of the park board who both have no power and everyone hates when they use their power that they do have. The number of abolish the park board posts I've seen out there, it's not necessarily a bad idea, but it's... No, not necessarily a bad idea. Maybe a good idea. Maybe an idea that I am flirting with pretty strongly. Yeah, I, I don't know. I find, I find that like a unified city government is probably more sensible than the system that we have at the moment. Well, it's more powerful, but let's start to turn this conversation towards a close. To bring it back to the park board bylaw, one of the things I asked you before we started recording, Micah, because there was a split, like John Irwin of Cope voted against this bylaw, but his colleague Gwen Giesbrecht, also of Cope, voted for it. 
Irwin said there was a failure to consult with indigenous and unhoused people, I think he took the view that this is still kind of a punitive bylaw versus Gwen was probably saying this is something that's better than nothing. The Greens all voted for it. The NPA all voted against it. So is this bylaw better than not having a bylaw? First of all, there was a bylaw, but the bylaw was unconstitutional. If you are supportive of the concept of responsible government, you should not have an unconstitutional bylaw on the books. Not only is it useless, it's kind of an affront to the rule of law itself because you're not recognizing what the courts have explicitly said. So beyond just not being able to enforce it, it's just not a good idea to have it. Now, I, the reason why I'm on this program, among other things, I, I also love talking to both of you guys, but one of the reasons was that there is some frustration out there about why the Parks Board has gone this route, why they have decided to allow people to camp in parks legitimately. And the simple answer is the Parks Board didn't have a very fun choice to make, but they, they needed to have a law on the books if they were going to have one that complied with the jurisprudence. And in my view, they've taken a strong step towards a bylaw that looks like it would withstand constitutional scrutiny. And Ian, as you put it so eloquently, the uh, bylaw that it replaced simply was not a bylaw at all. It was worse than no bylaw. So I, I do think that the that the Parks Board is better off with this bylaw than with the one they had before. Now, whether you think that there should have been some other bylaw, something else that complied with the constitutional standards enshrined by the court, I'm open to that sort of criticism. But I, I don't think that the Park Board had much of a choice when faced with one side that wanted to keep the bylaw as is and maybe conduct some additional consultation and an actual motion on the books that could withstand constitutional scrutiny. So the one last thing that I want to put out here is about what enforcement is going to look like. Ian, you and I were talking about this before we started recording. I must say, I'm not sure how this bylaw could be enforced. There's 14 full-time park rangers. There's something like 240 parks in Vancouver. How it is that these 14 park rangers with the limited enforcement powers that they have are going to be able to go into the tent cities and convince these individuals to pack up and leave the security and permanence of their homes. And these are, frankly, as close to a home as these individuals have. I just don't see how that's going to happen. One of the criticisms is that this bylaw has been enforced without teeth, and that very well may be true. I, I think it's a practical issue that the Parks Board knows about. I'll be curious to see how they confront that or if they take any steps to actually do something about enforcing this new bylaw. But the cold reality is that these 14 rangers probably won't do much. But as I said, at least the bylaw can come into compliance with our constitution. That's, that's I think, a good start. It's one of Canada's great traditions of passing laws to be honored in the breach, where really the, the major rule in Canada is don't cause a ruckus. And then everything else is just sort of offshoots to be deployed to prevent said ruckus. Thank you for coming. Okay, excellent. Thanks a lot, guys. Cheers. And speaking of ruckuses, 
there is a bit of a kerfuffle going down within the NBA. So, four of the directors, Jane Frost, Jenny Richards, Marie Rogers, and Corey Sue, resigned July 24th, uh, citing poor communication and a failure to build the party. Now, the NBA has always been a bit of a party of convenience, let's say, where the non-communists could gather and control Vancouver, basically, because that was the, the big debate in, well, forever in Vancouver. Well, and that's something you only really need to do in election years. And it being two years and 792 days from an election, not that urgent or important no. for them to exist. No, but like there is a point where parties like become change agents themselves. And I think that the NPA has looked at parties like One City and groups like Abundant Housing Vancouver or even the Greens and seen a much more active militant base or partisan base compared to the rather more abundant NPA when really all the directors wanted to do was have a board meeting and couldn't even get that done. For over four months. Yeah, which, I mean, not great. You want you want to, at the very least, keep fundraising. I think even Vision was pretty active until the end there when everyone just bailed, but they had a core supporter base and it kept things moving. Like there were people who were as, you know, pro-Vision as they were partisan New Democrats or federal liberals or what have you. And the NPA has just not had that same, like, grassroots base. No, no, they have not. Part of that is because it, like, hasn't needed to fundraise quite as much as some of the other parties because of its money connections and just sort of the history and, and demographics of the NPA. Yeah, they just call up their three developer friends and they have all their checks cut for the next election. It's a little more than that, but... Well, effectively time it was timber barons but you know basically still so the npa's run into <laughs> a series of controversies even since the end of 2019 we talked with rebecca bligh back in december when she left the npa caucus to sit as an independent this followed a bunch of right wingers and anti soji types assuming certain board positions people with connections to rebel media and some rather darker, more regressive stuff that didn't necessarily represent the mushy, like, broad tent that I think the NPA has been historically known for. They do have some on the right, but they're also more friendly to the progressive culture that is Vancouver, while being a bit more economically moderate than Vision yeah. or Cope or whoever else. Uh, and if you like, if you want to go listen to one of my Sam Sullivan sessions, actually, I think it was just one. But the the description that Sam gave of the MPA was often a party of right wing businessmen that picked a council candidate slate of left wing. I, I won't say like activists, but they were people acceptable to Vancouver's left, and through that synergy of the two sides of the MPA were. I can't even say sides because it wasn't really a wing. It was like the management arm and the political arm. That was how they became what was the most powerful political or most successful political entity in the 20th century. Now, it should be noted that the 
MPA directors that quit the party are not the ones that Ian was bringing up as related to the anti-Soji and sort of distasteful stuff that some of these people, one who comes to mind is, is Glennis Tang, who once ran for Yes Vancouver as a public school board trustee who took over the board last year. Basically, they just haven't been, like, you know, you, it's not even an ideological conflict so much as a failure to lead, I guess, because a lot of these people have have been looking for some kind of direction, some kind of leadership, someone to step up or, or an agenda to be set, and literally no one is doing it. Well, like, there aren't many options out there for people who who aren't green, essentially, if I may shamelessly plug, yes, there are. <laughs> but even they're relatively quiet. Like they ran their campaign, but no one's heard of them since. And that's fair enough. It's quite a ways from the next election. One city at least isn't throwing any controversy up. And you mentioned this split between the NPA board and caucus. And even its caucus hasn't been free from controversy in the last few months. The council has been divided, but at least they're not embarrassing the party as far as I can say. I mean, you can disagree with Colleen Hardwick's positions. She's not an embarrassment. She's a very representative voice for a particular type of NBA voter. But this debate over police school liaisons came up at the Vancouver School Board following many of the Black Lives Matter protests in June. And NPA school trustee Fraser Ballantyne in the debates there talked about how Caucasian kids in the district are actually the visible minority and should be heard more from on this question about cops in schools. It just kind of came off weird. He did apologize for it. I don't know exactly what he was trying to do. No, but people that, noticed. That is super mysterious to me. That seems like a dumb thing to say. And, you know, we talked with Micah about the positions, the board is taking on or John Cooper is taking for example on homeless camps and you know there is a legit position there I think or at least one that's widely reflected but there's a lot of vile under there that you play with fire if you get too close to that and so the caucus skirts these issues to varying degrees but yeah like you said the NPA exists solely just to be the other Not, party yeah the party with principles and those who have principles but can't articulate them <laughs> but definitely know what their principles are not british columbia it was ever less so what do you think is in store for the mpa so they have one more board election before the actual appointment of candidates that was one of the things that rebecca bly raised as a issue that she does not believe that she would have been appointed as a as a lesbian candidate. And, uh, you know, I think those are, are interesting concerns combined with this idea of a, like a, a failure to launch really of a political party. I don't know where they are able to go from, like, it's going to require some leadership after the kind of debacle at the end of the last election with spending and where these funds were going and then this sort of board catastrophe happening yeah so earlier this year i think it was back in february and i 
think it was talked about on the show, on the program, Ken Sim was rumored to be interested in running for mayor again. And he'd launched a website and brought about, you know, started talking up some points. It wasn't clear, though, if he was eager to try again with the NPA or to go as an independent or do something else. But I would suspect he's the kind of guy who has the connections, right? He was the guy who was, the story goes, talked into it by the big names of the NPA into taking their banner. So I would suspect that that signals the movers and shakers behind this party are moving and shaking and aligning things. And maybe they're just happy to let whoever wants to be on the board in the interim play play politics for a little bit while for a little longer but soon the adults will come back and the money will come back that, that is my suspicion as well like money money moves mountains here as in basically any time or civilization throughout history and we do have much stricter finance rules now than we did in advance of some of the previous elections but money can find different ways to move different mountains. It moves a bunch of hills now. Yeah. Especially since like parties, this fundraising reform stuff does involve candidates actually having the responsibility to take on quite a bit more fundraising personally. And so their nomination campaigns are never paid for by the party and are actually required to donate some set amount often to you know to the central party in order to fund their national party campaign in the case of the federal election or just sort of general civic advertising in vancouver i feel like the board election which was pretty much ignored by the upstart npa's of the last round that eventually ended up splitting off and forming yes vancouver they some of them left for reasons that were not like totally consistent with the Yes Vancouver, I don't know, image of itself, I guess. You know, young hip Hector Brenner was running on the same ticket as anti Sochi Glennis Chan. And that, I think, makes for an uncomfortable set of bedfellows. I am interested to see whether Yes Vancouver becomes the party that is that home, whether Pro Vancouver is that party or whether. MPA is that party or whether that relatively small part of Vancouver's political society, you know, Wei Young, etc., notwithstanding, is represented by an actual standard bearer party. It's all up in the air and it's basically going to come down to what happens when the MPA kind of shakes itself out of its torpor and realizes that they have an election to run in about a year and a half. So stay tuned for about six months or so from now when the MPA might realize that they are a political party and start acting like it. Well, at the city council level, they don't seem to have fully realized that yet as their party caucus seems to be divided into largely two camps. On the one side, you have Melissa DeGenova, Lisa Dominato, and Sarah Kirby Young, who Dan Fumano has pointed out has have started to vote more consistently with one city's Christine Boyle and independent mayor Kennedy Stewart to advance marginally reasonable buildings in the city. 
such as, for example, the Denny's site, the 28-story tower that's going up there, or these zoning amendments that will allow six-story instead of four stories on arterials if that extra portion is rentals and not condos. On the other side, you have uh, Colleen Hardwick, who is joining quite often the Three Green members, and Jean Swanson from COPE, and quite often Rebecca Bly, who was formerly with the NPA, as we mentioned. Yes, Rebecca Bly had a fairly mixed housing voting record, if I recall. Like, she wasn't as strong as, uh, for example, Lisa Dominato, who was, I think, the best councillor on city council for supporting uh, new units of housing. Yeah, and these aren't hard and fast lines. Like, there are quite a few issues where I think Hardwick was the only vote against or there. There's a lot of those Hardwick-Swanson votes. And those come up a lot as well. You kind of have a scale of, like, conservationist to urbanist, as it would go. But I just really wanted to point out this excellent piece in the Vancouver Sun by Dan Fumano that talks a lot about this July 24th vote over these zoning permits, which went six to five. But he just, you know, we haven't had a ton of episodes over the summer, but it's because council has been kind of just doing the same thing and we're all in lockdown. the reason and no other reasons. <laughs> I'm going with that exact reason. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was no major changes in both of our lives that took up a lot of time. Anyway, maybe, uh, maybe we'll talk about that at a live show sometime. <laughs> if we can ever have those again. Yeah. So, Dan Vermano has talked about what I think a lot of City Hall watchers have viewed as the problem of Vancouver City Council, which is a lack of ability to do stuff. And moreover, a, not only a lack of ability, but a lack of political will to even engage with the idea of doing stuff. Like what started out with that super optimistic van ride up from the Riverside Community Center to City Hall to get to work has ossified into a elegant antler chandelier that looks great but does very little well and this whole article is centered around the zoning amendment change for six-story buildings that motion was deferred six to five pending further consultation this is just where we're at so we can't even decide that having two extra stories of rentals and now there's an argument that putting extra renters along major commercial streets is like saying, here, renters can exist in our city, but they have to live above all of the truck fumes and stuff. Yeah, and that actually wasn't the original idea in Vancouver City Planning itself, which was to focus the development of multifamily homes into lane, or, you know, back roads, laneways, etc., side roads, so that the buffer ended up being a row of single family houses that ended up being kind of low low ish income i mean it's still a single family house in vancouver but certainly not some of the more anticipated developments in vancouver were not this kind of rental only arterial focused thing this is a new development and it could change it should change it's dumb so yeah, here we have a city council being characterized as postpone and delay while we're still in the midst of a 
housing crisis, an opioid crisis, and a pandemic. So, optimistic yeah. times. So, in particular, Vancouver City Council is a little frustrating to me because, like, with a weak mayor system, council needs to step up and show some leadership. The benefit to Vancouver's party system is that when one party has a majority in particular, the government has a lot of leeway to like develop that vision and execute it. In this type of council split, of, of this kind of, of partisan breakdown, it is very hard without like actually some kind of special training to run a council or chair a council or even sit on a council that doesn't have procedures for moving things forward in a body rife with disagreement. Well, and the other half of it is the number of people coming out for these projects, whether it's through virtual consultations or in person, is an arms race now. It's, you know, there were over 100 speakers for this Denny's site development. You get the NIMBYs who come out, and then AHV is being effective at bringing out the people who support development and you have more and more coming. And so provincial and federal governments can deal with this because not everyone has a right to speak before them. You can submit things in writing and ask to be a representative who speaks there, but it does make it a little more efficient to bring things forward. And like city council has played around with these rules a little bit in terms of speaking length and some of those types of approaches, but you know, if every resident in the city of Vancouver showed up to debate or to speak to an issue, at some point, council's got to say, all right, I think we've heard from a representative sample. Let's move on. Well, actually, representative sample is a little bit tricky because, like, Vancouver City Council is responsible for waiting not only based on the city's needs, and, and you can manufacture something that looks like the last civic election if you wanted, but you also have to develop based on the neighborhood needs and answer the question, do the people who live nearest by matter most? Most city councils end up answering that question, yes, and, and wait accordingly. Although, and actually, this is a nice little area to shoehorn in a little announcement that I have. I was recently appointed to the Vancouver Board of Variants, and so I've been spending the summer, you know, making tiny changes to the footprints of buildings and adjusting the amount of building that can be near a tree, which sounds very boring and can be very boring, but also is actually very fulfilling and informative at the best of times. So for those of you who are denizens of the What Zoning Board approved this Facebook group for Vancouver, the answer is, in part, this guy. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Well, one of the councils where things may get shooken up a little so that perhaps things flow more difficultly, I guess. So Burnaby for a long time has just been a one-party state, the Burnaby Citizens Association. In the last election, Mike Hurley, independent, famously won. And in the last few years, things have been getting more complicated as three BCA members, Colleen Jordan, Dan Johnston, and Paul McDowell all left the party over disputes where I think they thought it was getting too close with Hurley and the remaining BCA members, James Wong, Sab Dollywall, and Pietro Calendino, and Nick Volko kind of took a more pro-Hurley stance. And then you also had Joe Keithley representing the Greens just to really make it a mess. But you basically had a 
a very minority situation council. Yeah, and, and it, it's weird for that to <laughs> emerge out of what looks like to be a very unified election. But in times of political turmoil, in that kind of churn, you do. Parties will realign themselves and reinvent themselves to reflect the views of a populace. I think the BCA really just represented Derek Corrigan. And once he was out of the mayor's chair, you had councillors whose only purpose was to be councillors, and they just happened to be able to get under the correct banner. And then they didn't actually have as much ideology tying them together. And so they've started to fracture. Now what throws this into even more disarray is unfortunately two Burnaby City councillors passed away earlier this year, uh, Nick Volko and Paul McDonnell. So there will now need to be by-elections to fill both of those positions. So these are some of the the hurly distant councillors. One was aligned more with him, I think, and one was not. So McDonnell had left the BCA and Volko was still with it. Just to, con- it's a mess. I'm trying to keep up with it and I live in this city and it's hard. So we'll have a by-election for two councillors. Everyone in the city will get to vote. The city was waiting a little bit to see what the province would say you can do because we are still in a pandemic. And so having a bunch of people line up at polling stations is probably a bad idea. Thankfully, Elections BC has released its COVID-19 by-elections guide because I guess there are dozens of councils that actually need by-elections because turnover happens quite a bit when you count up how many positions there are across the province. Yeah, there are there are over 2,000 city councillors in BC. So statistically... Some will resign, die, otherwise vacate their office. Yeah. Hopefully a juicy scandal for the Cambi Report to cover. The by-election will involve more mail-in ballots, more advanced voting, trying to create more physical distancing, reducing high-touch surfaces, maybe drive-by voting or something like curbside voting. I don't know. Just otherwise making it easier so that people don't have to be in close proximity, coughing and wheezing and getting each other sick. Well, one way that people don't have to be near each other in Burnaby, but still spend some time together without coughing and using and getting each other sick, is by cycling the Central Valley Greenway. And I, I just wanted to highlight one of my favorite summer rides for this sort of light Vancouverada. In particular, it is so beautiful. It is a nice, largely downhill trek from... Well, it goes from the Expo Telus World of Science to the New West Key and is largely downhill in that direction with two large, kind of gross, horrifying hills. And the reverse is a nice, gentle incline that is still very manageable for riders of most categories uh, and skill levels. I just want to talk about some of the interesting things that the Central Valley Greenway can show you about the differing types of cycle infrastructure available in Metro Vancouver. First off, there are so many like jarring transitions from like beautiful graded bike overpass over a highway to truck route. And so you're like, yeah, that little white line that separates you and big trucks doing 60, 80 kilometers an hour. Those things are scary. Like, I are. have been slipstreamed off a road by one of them. Like, I I was riding in Australia, and most of the roads where I was with, in the city that was built on a swamp are, like, graded embankments. Uh, and so 
I was riding on the side of the road, and this truck slipstreams me right off the road. It was just like being hit by uh, a wall of wind that suddenly blew uh, out from the side of the vehicle and sent me careening down and made me late for business organizations class, which I showed up to bleeding and battered. So, yet another argument for separated bikeways. Burnaby, get on it. It would be so easy. There is like more than enough room on that road. Gravel sucks. Yeah, there's a surprising amount of gravel on that route for how major it is. Like together with BC Parkway, it basically just loops the SkyTrain. And you would think we could do this better. Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about gravel and permeability recently, just because it's one of the things that Board of Variants has to consider. And it is fascinating to look at what can happen when stuff like that goes wrong. Case in point, Houston, which basically set up a system where it was just sort of like they ran a sheet of plastic wrap under their city and filled it up with water. There was nowhere for it to go. There is also, like, two aggravating things, both at the the Vancouver end of the trail. One is that the Central Valley Greenwood was actually a Expo 86 project that was supposed to extend all the way to the Expo Dome. It did not. It petered out at Clark at what I consider to be Vancouver's worst monument, Columbus Circle which was originally installed around 86 to be the endpoint of the official Central Valley Greenway line, because why would you want a commemorative expo trail to end at the expo building, Vancouver? And instead of terminating at this delightful geodesic dome, ends up at Columbus Circle, which is a monument to Christopher Columbus that we've talked about on the show before, because a big-dicked Satan showed up there one day after, well, the Columbus statue had been removed some years prior and was replaced subsequently by nothing. So an empty plinth stands there now. The Satan statue stood for, I believe, only one day, and the penguin statue that succeeded it, both acts of guerrilla art, were eventually taken down and taken to Vancouver Parks for disposal or reuse. Have you had a chance to ride it this summer? I have not. I have not been on my bicycle much this summer. After my bike was stolen last summer, I have to keep it on my balcony now because I don't trust my storage locker. So that extra impediment plus the involvement with the baby meant I haven't done as much. But we have done a few family trips with a bike trailer that have been quite lovely. We don't get as far, but you getting to use a bike trailer is fun. Haven't made it all the way around from the BC Parkway side to the CVG, though. But looking forward to it again. Well, hopefully you'll be able to get a ride in in some fashion before the end of the summer. I certainly hope to... One of my favorite rides is doing Central Valley out and then BC Parkway back. And yeah, hopefully you get to uh, get a nice ride in sometime soon. Maybe, in fact, you are on one right now. The meta commentary of me talking about the trail that you are on sounding magnificently in your ears before the SkyTrain plays you out. <laughs> Patreon.com slash can be report. 
Give us money. Clearly, we're rusty. <laughs> Thanks all for listening. It's good to be back. See you soon for more regularly scheduled content. For the Camry Report, I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. <laughs>